Welcome to the Creative Giant Show, where we go behind the scenes about what it means to live a life full of creative and professional success. Creative giants are talented, renaissance souls with a compassion-fueled bias towards action. Now, here is your host, Charlie Gilkey. Hello, Creative Giants. I'm excited to have Andrew Bennett for episode 35 for the Creative Giant Show. Andrew is a former Fortune 500 corporate executive who started his career as former U.S. presidential candidate H. Ross Perot's personal assistant. Eight years later, he had led a team that grew a business from $5 million U.S. million to $65 million in Australia. He has over two decades of experience as a leadership and organizational culture consultant and executive coach working with leaders all over the world in companies like Ford Motor Company, Marriott, GE Healthcare, and organizations of all sizes in government, education, healthcare, and nonprofit. Andrew has been involved in nearly 40 major organizational transformations over the last 20 years. For over 45 years, though, Andrew has been a magician and is a member of London's Magic Circle, the highest honor in magic. Ross Perot encouraged Andrew to use magic in his business presentations, and he has been refining this approach for the last 30 years. Magic is the art of transformation, and Andrew uses it to enable people to rethink possibilities and obstacles, opening the door to innovative thinking. Andrew's experience has proven that the human mind and heart are sources of incredible power. He teaches managers and leaders how to create environments where innovation, resilience, and capacity for change and adaptation thrive. Andrew, thanks so much for the work you do and for joining us on the show today. Thank you, Charlie, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you. Um, let's let's start with origin stories. I love origin stories and how people get started. So let's go back and focus on your beginning. How did you first end up as an assistant to Ross Perot, and how did that lead to bigger and better things for you? It was actually my second job out of college. My first job, I was a manager with Joanne Fabrics. Uh, I was the only male manager out of 750 stores. So it was a very interesting experience. Um, And a friend of mine had gone to work for Ross and had met him. Uh, I was in Detroit at the time. And um, General Motors was in the process of buying Ross's company, EDS, Electronic Data Systems. And so he was spending a lot of time in Michigan and adding a lot of people with manufacturing backgrounds to his uh, company. And I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. She, my friend contacted me and just said, you know, I met this guy and this is before Ross was a household name. This is long before his presidential bid and he just wasn't known. I'd never heard of him. And she said, I met this guy and I've gone to work for him and he's really great. I think you'll really resonate with his beliefs about business and um, I can set up a meeting. Uh, if you'd like. And and it was just a meeting of people whose um, philosophies were aligned. And so I said, that sounds great. So one day after work at Joanne's, I went and I met with Ross and he spent an hour and a half with me. And uh, I walked out of there on cloud nine because it, his beliefs were very much in, in line with mine. Um, and And so then the next day, I get this phone call from him and he says, um, I know you're a manager right now, but I need someone to take care of um, a lot of different things for me, personal and professional. 
um, in Detroit because General Motors is buying my company. And if you're interested, I think you'd be a good person for that. So I didn't hesitate one minute. And uh, that's how I met Ross and that's how I went to work for him. And he became um, an inspiration and a mentor and uh, someone that gave me probably one of the best examples of leadership that I've ever experienced. That's interesting because in career trajectories, that's kind of a step down, you know, from manager to personal assistant in some ways, right? Yeah, I, I actually, I, I share this story a lot. I, I, I am reluctant because I don't want to go on too long about it. But I had had an experience at Joanne Fabrics where um, leadership there really dramatically demonstrated that they didn't have my back. Um, we had money go missing at my store and uh, we turned the place upside down, couldn't find it. Um, and the corporate security came in and did an investigation and they held me responsible. They held me accountable and they took the missing money out of my pay. I was making $11,700 a year and uh, it was $700 in non-recoverable funds that they took out. But that, you know, when you're making 11700 that's a lot. And, you know, ultimately, I can't argue with it because the buck has to stop with the leader. You're ultimately responsible for everything that goes on under your roof. But um, that, that said, I also felt like, you know, well, it's kind of every man for himself around here. And um, when I was working for Ross, I made a big mistake that cost the company $15,000 and, um, you know, contrary to, uh, or counter to what I experienced at Joanne's Ross said, you know, I've just invested $15,000 in your education. That's phenomenal. So I, I share that because, you know, you had mentioned it's a step down. Um, but it was such a phenomenal, culture that Ross created that I, I just, my, my heart was leading me in that direction. I'm so glad you mentioned that because, and one of the reasons I wanted to play that up is because a lot of creative giants get stuck on a certain career trajectory and then a new opportunity will open up for them and either the label or the status starts playing head games with them, right? It's like, well, if I do that, then I've spent the last 15 years to be a senior manager and I don't want to go be a line leader at this new startup or I don't want to go like that's that's not the trajectory. And I think in a lot of ways they're missing out that like this is an aligned opportunity like this helps you become better, um, a better version of yourself and what you want to do in the world. And I think that's what we should pay attention to, not necessarily society's label or a career trajectory in that way. I, yeah, I really agree. Um, and and, you know, it happened to me because. Uh, I spent 10 years with Ross and was very focused on climbing the ladder um, and doing that. And, you know, and dis despite what I said about Ross and, and everything, I became very focused on those kinds of things, titles and money. And um, I was very wrapped up in status and appearances and everything. And then I had some experiences where through, you know, acts of God, I lost it all. And it really shifted my perspective about what's important. 
I'm really fascinated here because while you were working in the corporate world, you were also practicing magic of all things. Um, so were you in the closet about that or, and if so, why? And, and how did Ross finally come to know about your special talents? No, I've always been very open about doing magic. Uh, I started when I was seven years old and, you know, I am an entrepreneur. I started my first business when I was 12. It was Andy Bennett and company. It was magic shows, you know, for birthday parties and uh, church chicken dinners and you name it. Um, and so magic has been a huge part of my life. Um, it, it, it was my passion. It is my passion, uh, one of my passions. And um, I did magic at the uh, office Christmas party the year that I worked for Ross. And he did not know at that point that I did magic. I'd been working for him for uh, probably six months. And when he saw that afterwards, he came up to me and he said, you have got to uh, incorporate that into business presentations. He said, when I saw you doing it, I saw a part of you that I've never seen before, a very playful um, more spontaneous, more approachable um, kind of persona. And then he provided me with an opportunity to do it. It was a presentation to the General Motors Board of Directors of all places. That was the first time where I tried integrating magic into my message. And, well, it scared the shit out of me um, because it was as I looked around the table and I saw the body language of people, I, I opened with a magic trick and the message was about how general motors and EDS were operating on two different communication systems. I mean, this is before the internet, this is before texting and all of that, but it was, it, there were, there were, were electronic, um, you know, email type systems out there and general motors was on one and EDS was on another. And so, Ross wanted me to make the case for everybody getting on the same platform. And so I started doing this magic trick where I'm tearing up a newspaper and it's about how this, the two different systems are tearing us apart. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting example, but I looked around the table and the body language was like, oh, my, and the messages that started in my head were, I was just telling myself stories about, you know, this kid's, what is he doing, trying to be clever. And there were the arms crossed. There were people snickering. There were people shaking their heads. There were people putting their heads in their hands like, I can't stand this. And then I get to the moment of magic. And it's where, you know, I said, we need to come together on one platform. And you flip this wad of torn up newspaper. And it's all, it kind of melts back together. And it's a very visual and dramatic uh, uh, illusion. And, and all of a sudden the room was filled, filled with little children. I mean, one guy stood up and knocked his chair over behind him. Several people pounded their fists on the table and laughter and everything. And I looked over at Ross and he's just leaning back in his chair, smiling and nodding at me. Like, see, see how that works. Yeah. I've done a lot of crazy things in my life, but, um, you know, that would be one of those things that would terrify me to be in front of a board doing it. Like having all of that go on, I'd probably, I don't know. That's one of those things I might have to phone it in and be like, you know, I was going one way with this, but I see it's not working. <laughs> but I suppose you've been building that up since you were 12. Like, you know, because that's, that's what happens, you know? 
I was very confident of my performance skills. Uh, very, very confident. Um, so the magic part of it, and, and I have to say that, um, I have a way of presenting magic that is, um, I don't know. It's, I, you know, I don't want to brag, but I've been doing it my whole life and, and I have a way of doing it that people really enjoy. So, well, come on, Andrew, you're part of London's like circle here, like the magic circle. Like you can brag a little bit about that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All righty. So here you are, you're, you're going up the corporate ladder, you're practicing magic. Um, you have, you know, some things that really, um, put you on a reset as it were, um, from the corporate ladder, like, what was a epiphany for you throughout that that kind of nudged you towards the core purpose of your work as you now see it? Uh, well, I think, you know, I, I mentioned that there were some some acts of God that happened. Um, uh, I had built uh, my dream house and uh, moved in. And very shortly after moving in, I became very ill. I developed irritable bowel syndrome. I lost 30 pounds. Um, come to find out the house was infected with toxic mold and, uh, it was condemned by the health department and, um, I sued the builder. The builder had deeper pockets and I ended up losing everything I'd invested in the house and went bankrupt. Uh, so I started over, I moved into a, uh, uh, an apartment on the third floor of a three-story apartment building and one afternoon lightning struck the roof above my bedroom and uh, started a fire and the roof collapsed and destroyed everything I had. So within the span of three months uh, I lost everything financially and lost everything materially. And then prior to that since the age of three, I'd had really dramatic loss uh, of loved ones, deaths, Um, you know, starting with my mother and my sister who were killed by a drunk driver when I was three years old. And and then there's more, uh, more really dramatic um, loss. And so I I think these events as an adult, you know, the, the mold house and the fire, um, kind of cracked open all of that stuff about loss. And so this was very personal. It, it completely shifted my view of life. I mean, I remember standing there outside the apartment building, looking up at the flames and there's fire engines everywhere and the red cross and, you know, and I just, I looked up and I said, okay, you've got my attention. There'd been you know, so many dramatic things that happened to me in my life that I just felt like, okay, what am I, I mean, you don't have to do any more. You got my attention. And I looked around and what I saw were my loved ones. The, you know, my best friend from when I was seven years old was there uh, to, to do what he could. And another friend that I grew up was there, um, family, you know, close friends. And, and I, it just shifted everything from this guy who was so focused on climbing the ladder, getting the right car, um, having the right title, living in the right place, everything that I thought would signal to the world that I 
am successful. I am worthy. I'm a good person. Um, all of that was put into perspective uh, that we're very fragile and anything can happen to anyone at any time. So we need to be compassionate. And um, this idea about success being all of those things um, really shifted that success is about caring for others. It's about making the world a better place. It's about living up to our potential. And, um, you know, I'm not, I don't want anyone to think I'm a socialist or anti-capitalist. That's far from the case because our social system of capitalism is, uh, you know, it's the best so far. Uh, and so I'm a, a big capitalist, a big believer, but I also think that success in those ways comes from um, serving a, a much deeper purpose, which is about the beauty of the human spirit and what we're here to um, do for each other. And, you know, I, I want to make heaven on earth. Yeah, I, I think... I appreciate the qualifications there around socialism and anti-capitalism because I think the where we're starting to see from so many um, conscious thinkers and conscious capitalists is, is not that capitalism is bad. It's just that it's one aspect of our lives, yeah. and you can't let the economic aspect of your life control everything else or you end up being this lopsided sort of myopic person, you know? Yeah. Um, so – How'd you rebuild? Like, what, what was your first step after that? You're looking up, you're like, okay, there, there's all my stuff gone, right? You have no financial sort of, you know, reserves anymore. Like, how'd you rebuild from there? Like, what, I'm talking like the next day, the next week, you know, take us back to those moments. Well, it becomes very practical. You know, friends take you in and, I mean, I literally had the clothes on my back. So it all becomes very practical kind of survival stuff. You need a roof over your head and um, you need to clean up and, and all of that. And then you need to find new housing and, and all of that. But I also began to reinvent my business. And that's where um, my personal story, my business story, and the use of magic all came together. Um, I felt, you know, like I said, I, I looked up and I said, okay, you got my attention. And I felt very strongly like, you know, look, you've been given a huge gift here of some really dramatic experiences that the gift has been that you've gotten to see what life really is about. And you've been given clarity about, um, the difference you can make. And so you better take it. And so I did. And, and I had a dramatic experience going back to the farm where I grew up, where I, I had a complete shift in thinking about, um, the losses in my life, um, that, that made the personal part of work, uh, really become clear to me. So that, that's when I, kind of rebooted and uh, 
and and brought all of these pieces together. Alrighty, you have the the benefit of like hindsight and, and retrospective thinking now, right? So it's sometimes easier to put your work together after you've been doing it for a while. So with where we are now, like what's the core purpose of your work that you that you see? Well, I you know I can't separate my purpose in life from my purpose in work. They're, they're one and the same. And it really comes down to one word, which is thriving. I, I want to be thriving in my life. There was a decade during this fire and all of that where I was just surviving. And, and um, I had an epiphany going back to our farm that made me realize surviving is not what you're here for. Um, uh, what I realized is that we can thrive and that, that it's the things that, you know, it's our scars actually that enable us to, to, uh, thrive. And so I want that for myself. I want that for human beings. Um, so, and I want it for companies. So most of my work is done in the corporate world. Um, 95% of it. And it's done with leaders primarily. Um, and so it's, it's about how do we create work environments where people can thrive. And, and to me, thriving means, um, uh, you know, certainly capitalistic thriving, that we are financially successful, that we create jobs, um, that we create valuable products and services, all of that. And there's a human dimension to it, which is um, that the people in our company can thrive as well. And that means that they feel valued and they feel fulfilled, that their work really makes a difference in this world, that it, it matters, it makes the world a better place, um, that work is a place where they are supported, where they can grow professionally and personally. Um, that they can, it's an environment where they can transcend the limitations of their own thinking. Uh, the things that we all have that we know that hold us back that, you know, we can create workplaces where you can, where you can overcome, uh, thinking that holds you back. Uh, so, so those are, you know, that's really the core of my work is, you know, it's, it's like thriving in work. It's, it's, uh, um, honoring and, um, you know, honoring the human spirit at work. So that we're kind of brought in to know, give me a timestamp for like the fire. And when you started this new work around thriving in corporations, the fire, um, the mold house that was all in, um, around, uh, 2003. Okay. Um, and I wanted to ask that because it seems circa 2015 that a lot of the, at least the messages and the mantras of the human aspect of business, especially in the corporate world, is now much more common than it was in 2000 and in 1990 and in, and so on. At least that's the way it seems as I'm reading the literature and going through it. So um, have you faced any particular challenges or resistance to that message in corporations? And if so, like how have you worked through some of those different challenge points or resistances? Yeah, great. Interesting question. Uh, you know, um, there was a time, I, I saw a, a, a buildup, a, um, 
a growing interest and passion for, I'll call it just the human side of, of work. Um, back in um, the late 90s, uh, there was a lot of growing interest, I'd say, around you know, 97, 98, 99 companies and leaders were becoming more interested in uh, developing people and in, in kind of in this human spirit type realm. Uh, and then, and then nine 11 happened and I saw, uh, and, and, and I have no data, you know, this is just purely my felt experience. Uh, but what I, what I saw was people kind of, uh, moving back into, um, a more fearful place. And it was kind of more about, uh, taking care of the fundamentals of business. Um, and understandably, you know, because people were very threatened by what had happened uh, on that day. And so I, I felt like, gosh, you know, we're getting momentum here. The, this, this movement, if you want to call it, is gaining momentum. And then, boom, 9-11 happened. And it felt like, gosh, we're, we're back to basics here, uh, which I guess, I guess was necessary. But now, like you said, we're we're back and there's a a growing um uh community of leaders of businesses that are really interested in the deeper purpose of work um the the deeper opportunity that a workplace can provide for people um and so uh, I, I'm inspired daily by, you know, I'm constantly researching and by the companies and the leaders that I'm seeing out there that are doing really awesome things uh, for people and for the world. This concern or focus on the human side of business, like it seems to be much more practiced, at least attempted to be practiced in small micro and sort of mid-sized companies that kind of get the human element. Um, of course, a lot of times they have troubles like providing the financial stability and the long-term prosperity for the people that work for them. Yeah. Um, so that's their challenge and really fulfilling their promise to take care of the human side. I'm curious from your perspective, What's the challenge coming from the organizational or the larger corporation side with fulfilling sort of that promise to take good care of its people? Yeah, another great question. Uh, you know, not to be, uh, I guess, glib about it, but it, it's fear. And I think having worked in organizations from the really, really, really large mega corporations to really small. I mean, last week I worked with uh, a, a dental office of 12 people. Um, and so I, I've worked the, the range and I, I think the larger a system gets, um, the more magnified the fear becomes. So for a small, uh, organization like the dentist last week, he's got a great practice, 12 people, he and his wife own it and run it. And they certainly, as as entrepreneurs, uh, as businesses, small business people, they certainly have plenty of fears. Um, but the larger you get, those those sources of fear just become magnified. Uh, the the number of people who have um, 
control and influence over your professional life and frankly over your personal life as well uh, gets magnified. The um, pressures that are uh, asserted by demands of stockholders and the fears of um, that come from media and and access to information, you know, the, the fears just get so magnified that it really introduces a lot more um, factors into preventing you from having the courage to say, wait a minute, um, we're going to spend some of our time not just focused on uh, uh producing profit and improving processes, but we're going to spend some of our time learning how to think more effectively, learning how to um, manage and engage our emotions effectively. You know, all of the parts of being human, uh, it takes a great deal of courage to take a stand for that. But what I've found is that um, over the years is that um, people that I would consider more managers are concerned about making their people better employees, and people who are leaders are focused on making them their employees better people. That there's a respect for uh, the human being and the value of people and the um, opportunity that we have to um, to get better, to become more effective people and happier people. So, yeah, that's interesting. Cause as I work with executives, um, and especially as we look at their direct reports and how their managers are coming to them and things is like, I often have to remind the executives that like, you have to explicitly tell those managers that they have both the authority and the responsibility to take good care of their people and to focus on the human side. Otherwise, like, they don't necessarily know, right? That, wait a second, that's part of my job too. It's like, it seems weird to say that, right? Um, but I, I think there are a lot of managers and a lot of, I think it's a leadership failure at the top there. If they're not making that a total organizational priority, that this is this is what this means and how you do it. And everybody has the authority, responsibility, and accountability to do so rather than it being a top thing. I think at least what I've seen, the leaders like take that responsibility and take that authority and just make it happen or the managers are much more passive about that. But that, that's at least what I've seen. Have you seen something similar to that as well? Oh yeah. I mean, you took the words right out of my mouth. The, a culture flows from the top leader. Um, you can look at, at behavior of people in any organization and I guarantee you that when you see dysfunctional behavior, um, it, it, its roots are at the top. Just that's one thing I know for sure. You mentioned that you want to change or you at least want to um, provide an alternative message that um, against the prevailing belief that organizations exist to make a profit. And instead you're proposing that what if the purpose of an organization was to help people grow as they make the planet a better place? Um, how, Let's talk about that message and how that's working out for you. And, and, you know, I think 
especially myself and the other people listening to the show, that's really what we're about is trying to make the, the world a better place in different ways. Sometimes it's through our creative endeavors. Sometimes you create businesses. Sometimes we're leaders and managers. But that's, I think, one of those overriding foci. Um, what... I, you know, I'm, I'm looking at you as a magician and as illusionist and some brought as an energy alchemist at the same time of taking some of this fear and just sort of murk and, and pulling that, that ball out of the newspaper. So um, how are you going about advancing that um, and, and how's it being received? Well, the way that the magic um, plays a role in it has become uh, powerful beyond what I ever expected, actually. Um Way back when I started doing it, when Ross suggested it, it was kind of just, um, uh, I won't say it was merely entertainment, but there wasn't, you know, it it was a a vehicle. It was a prop. It was a prop. Exactly. Um, But where it's evolved is, uh, is pretty cool, I have to say. Uh, a few years ago, as I looked at the work that I've done over the years and um, at my own experience of, of personal transformation, it dawned on me that there's a parallel between transformation and magic. Uh, when you're first learning magic, you learn three basic effects. You, you have to learn how to make something appear, you know, like your hand is empty and a ball appears. Uh, you have to learn to make something disappear. And you have to learn how to restore things. You tear up a newspaper and it's back together again. So those are the three basics. It's appear, disappear, and restore. And so when I was thinking about those uh, and thinking about working with leaders who are trying to transform things and my own transformation, uh, that framework really becomes powerful. I can see that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, Like if you want to change your company. You need to get clear on what it is you want. Uh, That's, you know, if we want to oversimplify it, that's the vision thing. Um, There's, there's a lot of um, things that, that make a vision work and not work that, that is the more detailed part of my work. But, um, you know, you need to look at what needs to go away. This is a huge problem in companies. I think it's almost as important as being clear about where you're going is what do you need to stop doing? Um, I think it's a big problem because uh, over the years, we we just keep piling more stuff on. Uh, One of the huge things that I hear people saying is, you know, we're having to do more with less. Um, And that's good to a certain extent. uh, But people are overwhelmed and things aren't getting done well. And, and when you try to do too much and you don't have the space to really do what you need to be doing or need to be doing really well, then the business suffers. Um, and then the restore piece is so critical because, uh, there's a lot of things that get broken in an organization and, and a big one of those things is relationships. Um, relationships get damaged over time. And so, you know, learning to restore those uh, broken relationships. Um, and, in, and, you know, and I also see another piece of the restoration part of the puzzle is um, integrity gets broken. Um, 
when, when, when people stop living by their values, for example. Um, so, so the idea of restoring is going back to what do we value and, and how do we want to be uh, behaving with each other and our customers. And let's get back to really the, the, the truth of what makes us good and strong and powerful and successful and so, so that's the way it's all come together. And I've just, like I said, I've been amazed at how that framework has been received. I mean, I, I have a client that has adopted it as their corporate change model, a $2.5 billion company that whenever they're going through a, a change initiative, they sit down and the first thing they do is they say, okay, what do we want to make appear? What do we need to make disappear? And what do we need to restore? I mean, initially, I just thought it was clever. <laughs> I didn't expect people to like say, "Wow, this is really a great framework." This this really takes into consideration. It's very robust, and so so that's the way it's kind of um, you know unfolding. I absolutely love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. And what I love about it, I mean, I, I love a good framework. So everybody knows that, right? But what I love about it is, again, here you are taking magic and it, infusing it into a traditional setting where we would expect people to have arms crossed and, you know, all the different things going. And you're using it to transform those organizations. That's that's brilliant. And I, I really applaud um, the courage to, to bring that and show up full force like that. Well, thank you. I mean, it's joyful for me because, geez, I get to do all these things that I love. Um, and And, you know, there's something... So I work with the magic in this framework of appear, disappear, restore. Um, but I also work with magic on a, a symbolic level. You know, the word abracadabra, mm -hmm. it, it's an Aramaic word that means what I speak is what I create. Hmm. I mean, how amazing is that? And I also work with magic on, uh, from a business perspective. I talk to people about how magicians innovate because we have to constantly be creating new ways of um, giving people the experience of wonder and joy and, and all of that. Uh, but then the magic itself, the performance of magic in a group experience is there's something that happens mentally that opens people up to new ways of thinking. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. Uh, there's a, a PhD candidate right now who's talking with me. He wants to do some research to find out what's going on when people are experiencing magic relative to learning. Um, I think there's something cross hemisphere, right brain, left brain going on. Um, but I just, I regularly hear from people that they, you know, they're op they open up to uh, new ways of thinking, and it's pretty cool. I'm not the um, scientist in this way, but I have read the research that links this type of that type of learning with humor, in the sense of when there's a joke that's gotten, it shifts the brain, and so I would scratch around in those areas because I imagine that the tension that you create with magic creates a very heightened sense of that same thing that happens with a joke. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. That's beautiful. Um, 
All right, let's let's start pulling it to a close anymore, because because I could talk to you forever just about the magic model, not not the magic so much, but how you're making it with the framework, and then people throw tomatoes at both of us. So we're not going to do that. Um, with where you are right now, what's the most unanticipated challenge that you're currently facing? Oh gosh, wow! The most unanticipated challenge that I'm facing. Um, you know, it's it's actually um, I'm writing a book. And the, um, I think the most unanticipated challenge I'm facing is, um, uh, the, the focus of the, the message, um, because there, there's such an integration of work and business. And, um, so there's, there's a tension there, um, yeah, that's a that's a good question. I mean, I, that's that's what's you know kind of my challenge for me. Um, but I'm also thinking about what's the the challenge for my clients right now. Um, and um, yeah, I I, uh, I have to think about this a little bit. Um, You know, I, I think that uh, there's a shift going on with leaders around understanding how change really happens. And so um, a lot of how change has been driven in the past has been kind of very programmatic. And use of words like, you know, getting buy-in and things like that. And so there's a shift going on that more leaders are starting to understand that change happens when we change first internally, that uh, the leader has to embody the change. The leader has to, um, really understand what the change means to him or her personally. Um, and that that's the starting point and then engaging people in a conversation about change, about change being a process, not an event. Um, I think that's a challenge that I see my clients facing. Um, I had a client who loved the framework of appear, disappear, restore. And so I did a series of workshops for them and they came back and said, you know, we love that framework. We love you, but our managers just want a step-by-step -step approach to how do I lead a change? And so we love you, but we're not going to work with you anymore. And we're going to create job aids that will be step-by-step -step instructions for our managers. Hmm. That's an interesting response. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. A lot to think about there. If people remember nothing else about you and your work, what's the one thing you want them to take away from this episode? Well, I think um, for me, a, a huge thing that we don't really realize is the power of hope. 
I think one of the greatest things a leader can do is give people hope. And uh, people are not feeling hopeful out there in the workplace. Um, people are scared. And, you know, if you follow Gallup's research around employee engagement, we know that 70% of the workforce is either not engaged or actively disengaged. And that really bums me out. Um, those people aren't feeling hopeful about their companies, about their futures. Um, and uh, if you've ever lost hope, you know how important it is. And so I think a huge um, opportunity we have is to is to enable each other to be, be hopeful about our own futures, about our company's future. Um, that's really, really important to people. You, you don't hear there a lot of conversation about hope and leadership, but I think it's huge. Yeah, I think after um, the the campaign of hope, and I'm not going to go political there, but I think it we got a little bit of reaction there, but I'm, I'm hopeful that hope is going to come back into the conversation. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I, I know that was Obama's platform, really, that I think about the posters back then. Um, you know, just because there's so much um, criticism uh, of him doesn't mean that people don't need hope. I mean, they need it more than ever. Uh, I mean, the, the statistics on people being disillusioned and not voting. And I mean, we're on the verge of like terminal apathy in this country because people are feeling so not hopeful. And, uh, so it's, uh, it's huge. Yeah. Very, very huge. Um, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up there. Andrew, thanks so much for being a part of the show today. Thank you, Charlie. It's been great to be here and thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you. Okay, so for the Creative Giants listening to this show, how can you engender hope in yourself and those around you and take some of that fear and use it as fuel to make the world better? It's each of our responsibility to do so. And remember, pick yourself. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to the Creative Giant Show. To find more tools and inspiration for Creative Giants, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. Stand tall, creative giant.